Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, that is our signal to begin. It's off to the races for us this morning because we got a lot to cover. Uh, I didn't get as far as I wanted to last week, so we got to make up some ground. Uh, so again, we are covering uh, David the sinner and the contrite heart that he had, and this is part two of looking at David and Bathsheba. And so just for a brief recap of what we went over last week before we begin this week. So last week, we learned of David's sin. It was a tough blow. It was disappointing. But we turned to the one who has the answers. And we asked and said, Lord, what is it that you'd want us to learn? What is it that you would have us to do? And so for one time in this class, we looked at David as a negative example. And we talked about striving to be people after God's own heart and that we must be careful to guard our hearts, even though we will be imperfect at doing that, uh, so that we don't fall into the same uh, traps, the same sins that David did. But I made the comment at the end of class that, uh, unfortunately, what happened, happened. And that I, I know that David wished that he could just turn the clock back and, and everything would be back to normal, but if, that's not the way that it is going to be. Uh, for that, life must go on. And so, uh, so th- we're going to be looking this morning at what David did right um, after, afterwards. So when we look at David and his case here in 2 Samuel and the sins that he committed, they're highlighted by adultery and murder. But I could come up with a short list of sins myself that would be, I guess we'd call them grievous or they're... Uh, you know, all sins separate you from God, but some have more consequences than others do, all right? And some are more repulsive than others. And I can come up with a short list of them, and just going through my mind, not all of them, but most of them I can think of Christians that have fallen into uh, those um, sins. And so I like to challenge myself uh, when I stay through David, and we find that David, after... Uh, He's confronted with his sin, and after the child dies, he goes to the temple to worship. And I thought to myself, if you can think with me, I'll invite you to do so. What if David walked through the doors, if you knew everything you knew about what he had done? He walks through the doors, and he sits in the assembly, and he sits on the row in front of you. What goes through your mind? not saying what you would say, I'm saying what would go on in your heart. I don't know, perhaps your reaction might be like that of Shimei. In 2 Samuel 16, this occurs after Absalom has tried to take the throne. David has to flee for his life in exile. And uh, verse uh, 5, so we meet this guy named Shimei. He was a member of the family of Saul. And when he sees David out there, he goes and he curses at him continually. Now, Shimei is under the wrong impression. He thinks all that's happened to David has happened to him because of all that David did with the house of Saul. 
Well, that's not true. David had done nothing but good to the house of Saul. All this had to do with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, but still, he takes the uh, occasion to um, let David have it, and he comes out cursing continuously at him. And he says, come out, verse 7, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom in the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Uh, and so you can see David's, some of his mighty men there, Abishai, he just ready, he, he takes a sword out. He said, oh, yeah, uh, let me go over and take off his head. You know, that's his reaction. Let's take care of this dead dog. You know, David's not in the mood for it at this time. And you can see, he says, let him curse because the Lord had said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse for so the Lord has ordered him. And it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And then we see Shimei throwing stones and kicking up dust and so forth. So perhaps that might be a person's reaction to David or somebody like David. I hope you enjoy what's coming to you, you know, in that kind of an attitude. I'd like to think that's not the attitude that, that I would have, even though I know that would be hard. I'd like to think that my attitude would be more like the prophet Nathan that I'd be willing to confront individual about their sin, that I would look to help them repent of their sin, and I would help to see them through the consequences uh, that they have. I know at least I've tried to live my life that way, and I do not regret it. So a few things that I keep in mind myself, questions that I ask that I know the answers to in dealing with this. So... If I have an individual that is on the magnitude of sin that David is, what are my thoughts about that? Of course, when I say this, keep in mind that, of course, we would expect that, uh, that God wants them to repent and so forth and everything. So I think to myself, well, what does God think of an individual like this? Well, I ask myself, does God still love said individual? I say, Yes. Did God send his son to this earth to die for an individual? Yes, that's still true. Does God still want this individual to live with him for eternity? It's true. He wants him to, to repent and to live his life according to God's will, and he'd live with him uh, forever. It's okay. And you say, well, Ben, that's pretty easy and pretty straightforward. Okay, well, let me up the ante a little bit here, because I'm striving to be like God. I'm striving to be like Christ. Now let me ask the questions to myself and see how this goes. Do I love said individual? Am I glad that Jesus sent his son to die for that individual? Do I want that individual to live with me for eternity? And those questions can get a lot harder uh, to answer, uh, for you, particularly if this individual has done something to you or if you were like me, do something, something to somebody you care about. That could be a lot harder to answer. So I have known of instances where uh, Christians were so offended at another Christian that I'm convinced that they would have rather see an individual burn in hell for eternity than to accept any form of repentance from them. Rather than I've seen it, and I know that can't be right. So 
we get to David here in chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12 is where I want to start. Um, if I had an individual that was dealing with grievous sin in their life, a Christian of that sort, what would I do? I would point them to David's example. And so, again, David is my friend, but David has messed up his life something awful. Is there any hope for David? So let's start by looking at his reaction to Nathan here in chapter 12. So we see with verse 13, the first thing David says is very important when Nathan confronts him. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, flat out. He takes responsibility for it right there. So he confesses his sin, okay? Now we get to 15, we get to some of the consequences coming from him. So Nathan departs, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So if I was talking with somebody dealing with a situation like this, one thing I would say is you respond with prayer, with a contrite heart. And he's in solitude and uh, looking at God's mercy. So continuing on 18 through 20. So the child dies, and the servants are afraid to tell him. Verse 19, David saw that his servants were whispering. David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Another thing that I would tell a person like this is... uh, face the consequences realistically, we see a very mature reaction from David um, here. The answer was no, but he still went and worshipped God regardless. Verse 21 through 23, we get the explanation. Servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said... Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Another piece of advice I would give in a situation like this is that one needs to lay hold on the truths of Scripture. Something that David did here, he, he knew God was merciful. He was relying on that. He is relying on God's forgiveness. He said he's relying on hope. As we see here, he's remarking about the child um, on eternity. So then in 24 and 25, David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So another piece of advice I would give, refuse to give up in serving the Lord and in following him. So... From this point, I want to turn to what I've been promising to do uh, over the last several weeks. We want to turn to Psalm 51 now and go through a detailed look at this psalm. Most scholars and most certainly believe this psalm was written uh, right after David had been, his sin with Bathsheba had been exposed and Nathan had confronted him. It's possible, I wonder, Second Samuel says after the child died that he went to the temple to worship. I kind of wonder if David may have written the psalm on that occasion. That's possible. Um, 
But anyway, let's step through this uh, uh, section of verses here. We'll start by reading verses 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. See David here repenting. Of course, repentance is a choice. This is something he is choosing to do. He's pleading for God's grace and compassion. He's overwhelmed by guilt. And he talks about cleansing in here repeatedly, and he's using several different terms to describe it, to give you, I guess, different pictures of different aspects of it, right? We see the terms blot out. see the term cleanse. We've seen the term wash. Being with sin is like having a sickness on you that you need to be cured from, or it's like being a filthy garment, being dirty. Then you need to be made clean. So David is facing up to his sin. Uh, plagued by his conscience. And another piece of advice I would give to somebody is they have to take full responsibility. His sin was against God first and foremost. We see here as he's directing himself to God. So in the New Testament, we read that uh, it comes to repentance and sin that one is to have godly sorrow. You hear that term come up sometimes. When you read Psalm 51, you are seeing an example of godly sorrow right here. So in this, David is remarking that God is perfectly righteous in pronouncing judgment on him. His sins are first against God, second against man. His sin exists because of choices that he has made. His sin cannot be excused. He cannot remove sin's stain and guilt. And his sin will not go away on its own with time or with location. Now I say that, I've been, I've been doing this, um, so I'm looking at talking to somebody who is dealing with grievous sin. Let's keep in mind that this is for ourselves as well, and reading and how we should deal with sin and how we should approach God in our lives. Let's continue on with verses 5 through 7. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So, a few weeks ago, Jerry Kilpatrick was sitting here, and he brought up um, verse 5. In here, and he brought up that this verse is used to teach original sin. In fact, I'd say this is one of the key texts that they use to have that. But, um, you know, that babies are born inherent in sin and so forth, passed down from their parents, going all the way back to, to Adam and so forth. Well, that's contrary to what the Word of God states, what Jesus himself stated, Matthew 19, 14. He pointed to children and looked at them as an example. Uh, for the kingdom of God. So we know that's not what it's talking about here in this verse. I take it that what David is saying here in verse 5 is a hyperbolic expression. Uh, we got to keep in mind that he is dealing with grief and he is dealing with guilt. 
at this time, so he's caught up in this sense of guilt, and it's like he has one big cloud of sin that's overshadowing his life, uh, the totality of his life. So he's saying even from his infancy, he has failed at carrying out God's will. Uh, this should be kind of familiar to us. I think we, we say things like this when we have strong feeling and so forth. Um, like everything's gone wrong today. I haven't done one thing right in my whole life. Everything I've ever done has been a mistake. And that's the kind of attitude that David here is expressing uh, in these verses. So he talks about the hidden part there in verse 6. This is the heart. He wants to know what is right, to desire it, to give himself to it. Looking to cultivate a true heart, he'd had a true heart. He's lost it. He's wanting to learn it anew. He's asking the Lord to, to purify. David wants a clean break from transgression. In a spiritual sense, he feels dirty and polluted. God can make him a new man. Okay, verses 8 through 10. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Sin brings misery. Pardon brings joy. David had lost his joy. He's looking to get it back. We see him use the expression in verse 8 that his bones have been broken. Of course, this isn't in a literal sense. But in saying that, he's giving this picture about how this has affected him mentally, physically. Socially, nothing can be more meaningful to him than to have his transgressions wiped. His desperate condition calls for divine action, and he's seeking restoration and renewal. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had been living outside of God's fellowship. He misses it now. I can't help but think when I'm reading this verse, when he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, I, I have in mind that David's probably remembering Saul, King Saul, when he's saying that. He knew what had happened to Saul. He knew how the Lord had departed from him. He does not want that happening to himself. And uh, so we see him uh, talking about repentance here. And one point that I want to make uh, on on this, so... Sometimes when you have people caught up in, in, in grievous sin and they come and they repent and they're looking, you know, sins like this open up a Pandora's box that you can't restore, you know, completely. And they look at trying to restore relationships that they had as if they'd once been and they find themselves unable to do that. And they throw up their hands in frustration, maybe saying, well, what good is repentance then? If that's the case, but look at what, what David is doing here in this psalm. Who is his actions directed to? Repentance is first and foremost in my relationship with God, and he knows that. And he's coming to him and repenting of him because above all else, that matters. But without God, even as king, David is nothing. He must have that relationship no matter what else happens. That has to be restored, and he is desiring that to be the case. Verse 12. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David's anticipating the joy that he wants back. He wants a renewed oneness with God, wants to remain right with God. And then we come to verse 13. Verse 13 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, given the context in which this is set in. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And I find that statement to be very amazing to me uh, in that regard, because, you know, if I was to react to David saying that, my attitude might be more lines like this. I might think, oh, well, David, come on, what are you talking about? After what all you've done? You think you can go and say this? I mean, what about all these pagan heathens around us? What do they think of our holy nation? teach transgressors their ways. But the thing is, that was already true. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, remember that in the pronouncement, God had stated to David that he had given cause for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Yet David is still able to write this statement here in Psalm 51. So question, did God answer this request? Yes. Is is David still doing that today? Yes. Is he doing that right now? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, and he's, he's saying that in this verse, you can, you can tell in the words, this is a, a, a feeling of appreciation that he's giving out to God for what God has done for him in removing his sin. He is going to teach transgressors uh, his way. And then you look at the verse and he's going to say, well, who's he going to teach? He's going to teach transgressors. Why? Because he was a transgressor. Mindful of what God has done for him. So I don't know why it is that those that know of God's redemption make the best evangelists. Can you not see in this verse the attitude that David is reflecting in this is the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had in the New Testament. He called himself the chiefest of sinners. So in saying that, though, I want to, to say this, and this is in regards to David as well. So. When you talk about somebody that's caught up in in a grievous sin and repenting of that and looking to get their relationship back with God and in serving God, uh, again, it's a Pandora's box that David had opened, that others opened, and you can't put that all back together uh, necessarily. So there will be doors of opportunity that will be closed to you. Um. Well, that, for instance, you could say if somebody did something that was illegal or criminal, that would definitely be true from a legal standpoint, and that does happen occasionally. But even without that, that's true. And it even may be the case that that may not be right that that door is closed, but that may be life. It is. So, regards to David, Absalom was a closed door to David. After the sin that David had committed and in the way that he mishandled that situation with Absalom, um, David could not get to him. I personally believe that at the point in Absalom's heart where he decided to um, lay with David's concubines in the sight of all Israel, I believe that was the point of no return uh, for him there. And as much as David would try to, to reach him and everything, he couldn't reach him. And so you see in 2 Samuel 18 and verse 33, when David learns that Absalom is killed, And you see that cry that he does there. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. And you notice the love that's said in that statement, but listen to the rest of it. 
If only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. Feel the tenor of the voice that that David is saying there and and see and you not feel the sense of guilt that David had in there and how he felt personally responsible for what had happened to Absalom in there. Yet with all of that said, God was still with David even through that. When I think about King David and that statement that he makes, I think about King Jesus, whom I serve, and how he ones up David in that regard. Let me read from Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says here that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The king that I serve, King Jesus, actually did die for me in that, and he was in no way responsible for my sinful condition. So uh, that's an interesting thought that I said there. So uh, like I said, God was still with David. And I do believe that if one follows him, even after sin, God will present other doors of opportunity to serve. David did that. That is true in the life of David. Solomon, for instance, was an open door uh, for David. Uh, My point being, no one has sinned so greatly that upon repentance there is no way that they can serve God. So let's go back to Psalm 51. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Only God can rid David of guilt. David wants a forgiven life so that he may properly worship God. He's experienced redemption, and now he's going to sing of it. So he makes his statements about sacrifice here. God did require sacrifice, but if you look at the Old Testament, especially in the prophets like Isaiah, you can see that he did not accept sacrifice with an improper heart attached to it. Um, One must be stripped of pride. God requires a broken spirit. So... Let me just ask the audience real quick here. A broken and contrite heart, how would you define that? We need to understand, and God said he would not despise this. So, yes, Fred. You understand why what you did is wrong. And you're sorry for it. In this case, sins before God and you're sorry before God. A broken and contrite heart means you've had a change of mind. You repent of what you did. So Fred is making the remark that it understands that you approaching God and knowing that you have done something against him, knowing why you've done it and why it is wrong and having a change of heart and repenting and, and turning to him. Okay? Anyone else want to add anything to that? Dina. Mm. Okay, Dina said this is a, a contrast against Saul and how David's taking responsibility for it, not trying to shift the blame to anything else. Great comment, too. 
Okay. Mm. Yeah, I like like that comment. Yes, Glenn is saying the contrast not just with Saul, it's with David himself and the way he was before this sinful action. So he was a narcissist. Peggy. We would call it hitting rock bottom. Okay, we would call it hitting rock bottom. Yes. Bill. sin that, that he had in there and, and not repented of it. Okay, so adding to this and some definitions that I would throw in with this as well, when we talk about a broken heart, and if I was talking to somebody uh, dealing with something like this, you have a broken heart, that means accepting responsibility for the guilt incurred, and to have a contrite heart being fully aware of your need to God as you submit obediently to him. So let's finish off with verses 18 and 19. Uh, these are kind of usually thought as an afterthought in this psalm, but they're important. And it, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Um, so... What these two verses here at the end do is that David has been talking personally with God. Now he's expanding it out to all of Israel. And this shows the selflessness that David had, the true leader that he was in thinking of the needs of others. So he asked God to bless Zion with his protective hand. And, uh, and that's the way that he finishes. And it's possible that this psalm, not only in later years, was probably used in dealing with the sins of the people, as well when it was read, not just with David's sins alone. So uh, so we see that God has forgiven him immediately, completely, forever. The psalm begins with an appeal for restoration, and it ends with an affirmation of worship. It began with what had been true of a sinful man, and ends with what is now and will be true of a forgiven and spiritually robust man and nation. Okay. This isn't the only psalm that David wrote that has this kind of attitude to it. I think we've got enough time. Let's turn to Psalm 32. And these next psalms that I'm going to read, I'm not going to provide much commentary on these. Um, They speak for themselves. I'll just read them and, and you can get the idea of them. So we read of Beatitudes in the Bible. We think of the Sermon on the Mount mostly when we think of Beatitudes. There are some in Revelation. There are some in Psalms as well, and this is an example of one of those. Start verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality has turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord and mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Again, it kind of follows that same sort of pattern as Psalm 51, where it talks talk about repentance and forgiveness, and it ends with worship and rejoicing. Now, Psalm 38 is the next one. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled and I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desires before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. My relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I, like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope, you will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. O make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We read through Psalm 51. 32 and 38. Now on these three psalms, I'll give three possibilities about them. It could be that these three psalms were all written right after David's sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. That could be the case. But we don't know that David sinned at other times in his life as well, so maybe each of these psalms reflect a different time in David's life uh, that he sinned. And isn't it wonderful to know that we can keep coming back to God and with penitent hearts and asking him to forgive us of sins that occur in our lives or even sins that distress us. If these all concern one sin, we repeatedly go uh, to him about it. There's a third option. 
Perhaps all these psalms were written concerning David's sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah, but they were all three written at different times, perhaps. Maybe the sin kept recurring up to David, and he would have to write a psalm and express it. You know, our past sins can haunt us as well, and we must be reminded of God's forgiveness. Maybe David was doing that. And because uh, sometimes it can be hard for us to feel that we are forgiven, isn't it? I don't know why it is when it comes to forgiving myself, I wonder why I hold myself to a higher standard than God does. And that, So, one last psalm that I want to get to is Psalm 103. Let's turn to it. Uh, this is a little bit of a different psalm in its mood. This, these other psalms were asking for repentance. This particular psalm is a psalm of praise that David gives to God, but there's a reason that he's praising God, and that's why I've chosen to read through most of it. Let's start with verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Boy, could David say that? Yes, he could. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and on his righteousness to children's children. You such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Okay? So if I was talking to somebody dealing with sin in their lives, I would point them to these psalms and have them read through them repeatedly. Um, before I get into my next big point, is there any comment that anyone wants to make? Real quick. I guess the psalms must have been pretty straightforward after all. Okay, let's delve into one other big point that I have before we give our concluding remarks. So, another thing that I would say if somebody was dealing with grievous sin in their lives like this, and a big point that you learn from David, is that it's the realistic point. One must accept the consequences of that. And you see that with David. And, you know, as amazing as his repentant attitude was, and it is, uh, you know, in thinking about that, if you look at a lot of the other kings that came after David when they were confronted with sin, they had a total different reaction 
than what David had, but his, his model of repentance is something that we need to take in our lives, but also the way that he just accepted what God had said uh, on him is, is amazing to me, and that maybe even more so amazing than the repentance itself. I know that had to have been hard. We see that in 2 Samuel 12, 19-23, when we read through that, where he accepts the death of his infant son. Later on in 2 Samuel 15, 25 through 26, we see him accepting his exile from Absalom. When Absalom was going over, he says, the Lord do what seems right to me, to him, excuse me, in that passage there. Um, we see it in a, uh, what we read from Shimei in 2 Samuel 16 when he's ridiculing him. We see David accepting that as well as if that had been a pronouncement from God. And even though Absalom's death is hard on him, we see him accepting it when he begins to rule again and take the throne. So it's something that he had to do. And I know Dina earlier brought up Saul, um, contrasting him with David. One big difference between Saul and David is this right here, that David would accept the consequences of what God had said on him, and Saul did not. You go back and you read when Saul had sinned and God tells him that the kingdom will be taken from him. What should Saul have done? He should have accepted that. Look what Jonathan did. And he should have lived according to that. And if he had, it would have turned out better for him. But alas, that was not the case. But we see that with David here that he does. Now, it doesn't mean that life is easy. Life is hard on it. But he's willing to do that and it turns out better for him. So, the bell has rung. I have five more minutes, which means I now get to my concluding remarks. One last point that I would want to make from David. We started this class off darkly. I'm going to end this class gloriously. One thing I would say to somebody from David, if they were dealing with sin in their lives, I would point out to them and make the point uh, that God helped David through the consequences that he had to face. When we've studied through David in this class, we have seen many amazing things that God did for David. We see him having to the courage to fight Goliath. We saw him, all the battles and the victories against the Philistines. We saw him fleeing from the persecution of Saul. We saw his great friendship with Jonathan. God set up David as king eventually. He set up the capital in Jerusalem. He brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He makes an everlasting covenant with David and with his descendants. In my humble opinion, the most amazing thing that God did for David was he helped him through the consequences of his own sins that he brought upon himself. And God is amazing to me how he can take things that are done outside of his will and take the actions, consequences, and conform them to his will. So from David and Bathsheba would come forth Solomon. And through the lineage of Solomon would come forth the Messiah. And amazingly, God sent his son to this earth to die on a cross so that David would have a means by which his sins could be removed. Hebrews 9, verse 15, Jesus covers transgressions into the first covenant. And the last verse that I want to go to in this class on David is Psalm 110 and verse 1. There's a verse of messianic prophecy that is said there. And David, looking into the future, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Did you catch that? This Jesus that David typified in so many ways, this Jesus that David could only dimly see into the future, David called Jesus his Lord. Jesus confirmed that in Matthew 22. Do you get what I'm trying to say to you? That David with his grievous sin, that David that sits in the auditorium, who is a member of the family of God, who wandered into the far country and has now come limping back. Jesus is the Lord of that David. And through Jesus, if God can forgive David, then he can forgive anyone. Praise God. Only the God of the Bible can do that. And it may be that you're sitting here as a Christian and you have a difficult past and grievous sin. My message to you is is to say that Jesus wants to be your Lord and you can be a person after God's own heart. It may be that you know some Christian that's dealing with grievous sin in their lives. And my message to you, even if it's uncomfortable to you, to help them to know that Jesus wants to be their Lord. And they can be a person after God's own heart. And to our evil, wicked, and unmerciful world, it seems to constantly be getting further and further away from God. That message must be proclaimed loud and clear. And that's all that I've got. I guess we have a few minutes. Does anyone want to add on anything extra? Fred. I suppose sin, whatever type you want to talk about, generically can be called a problem. Because all things are possible with God. All of us should remember Every problem in our life was meant to be solved, whether sooner or later, but at some point, solved. That should reinforce in our mind God is completely serious in forgiving our sin if we will turn to Him in genuine repentance to solve the problem. Brad's remarking that sin is a problem and that God has promised to solve our problems if we would turn to Him and come to repentance. So... That's it for the class. Um, You're dismissed, and uh, we'll be teaching next week. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.